0: Learn all about investing in real estate in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, with a combination of real estate financial planning and modeling with numbers specific to Fort Lauderdale. Plus, syndicated, more generalized recordings of live and pre-recorded real estate investing classes, not all of them specific to Fort Lauderdale. Be sure to stay tuned after the podcast for a message from our sponsors. Well, good morning and welcome, everyone. I am your host, James Orr. And today we're doing sort of the, the final class in a series of classes that we've done on financing options. Today is sort of the catch-all for all of the additional financing stuff that we haven't covered so far to date. So I'm going to jump right into it because we've got quite a bit to cover. Um, and I want to make sure that we have time in case we have questions at the end. So historically, this is a um this is a chart from the 2022 National Association of Realtors um, profile of home buyers and home sellers. And this chart shows you what percentage of all the buyers used what type of loan. So of all the buyers, 62% of the buyers that purchased the property in 2022 from their survey um, use conventional financing. And we've done an entire class on conventional financing. In fact, we've done several classes on conventional financing. So if you have questions about that, that's not what we're covering today. This is the class on all the other types of loans. But 62% of them use conventional financing. 17% of all the buyers use FHA financing. And we've done a separate class on FHA financing. The 3.5% down option for being able to buy properties, single family homes, duplexes, triplexes, fourplexes, that's FHA. The VA loan, which is a nothing down loan program, which also allows you to buy single family homes, duplexes, triplexes, and fourplexes, that is the VA loan. And we've covered an entire class on VA loans. 5% of the buyers didn't know the type of loan that they got, which I, honestly is not that surprising. Uh, I, I was surprised that, that the larger percentage knew what type of loan they got. Um, and then 5% got other. And so we are in that other area. The other area is all the other financing types that have not been covered, and we've covered some of those already. So here are the primary financing options, ones that we've covered before. The conventional financing, which there's the non owner-occupant versions, putting 15%, getting PMI, or putting 20% or 25% down and buying a property that you do not need to move into. But then there's a whole set of conventional financing for house hackers and nomads that are buying properties as investors, really, but they're moving into the property as an owner-occupant, living there for a period of time, and then they're either renting out part of it, like to roommates, or they're buying a duplex, triplex, or fourplex, and they're renting out, you know, a... Uh, property that uh they're living in one of the units and renting out the other ones like multifamily property or um I think I lost my train of thought there uh or or they're So they're doing the low-down strategies for the conventional financing, you know, 3% down or 5% down. Okay, so that's conventional. The FHA, we talked about that. That's 3.5% down. VA, we talked about that. USDA is a rural property. It's a nothing-down loan program for single-family homes, and you use that to buy rural properties um, in different parts of the country. It's not going to be in a major city. You may need to drive in order to qualify for that. And then we had an entirely separate class on portfolio financing, which is the financing you typically use – when you are either buying in some type of LLC, you're buying with partners and forming an LLC. You're buying with some type of self-directed retirement account, or you are buying and um, uh, you've already got ten conventional loans, so you're buying your portfolio loan um, after you've gotten your loan spots filled up. So we've covered an entire class on that. We're not going to cover today. So those are the primary financing options. This shows you an entire visual showing you all the financing options and then all of the additional financing options that were not the primary ones that we covered. And in order to zoom in and make it a little easier, I broke it up in two steps. We've already talked about these. So today we're going to talk about some of these other ones. Um, I'm not going to recover in as much detail as I did the ones where we have entirely separate classes. So the intention of this class about all the other financing options is to cover the more unusual ones that we have not yet covered. And they're so unusual that. There's... There's not going to be a ton of detail for you to go into because they're they're really, really unusual. Uh, You'll see what I mean here in a second. So creative financing, we've done an entire series of classes on that. That's all the owner financing stuff, wrap financing, buying properties subject to the existing mortgage, uh, doing any type of loan assumption on really low interest rate mortgages there, lease option, lease purchase, um, the whole rent to own family, any agreement for deed, bond for deed, contract for deed, anything like that. That's all part of the creative financing family. And we've covered that. In a separate class. I will very briefly run through those, but honestly, go watch the full, I don't know if it's a two, I think it's a two-hour class we did on just creative financing by itself, if you were interested in that. Then we've got private money, which we covered when we did the private money and hard money class. The difference in my mind between private money and hard money is private money is someone who is not usually in the business of making a real estate loan, Someone like grandma or grandpa or uh, Uncle Larry or Uncle Bob, uh, you know, the people that they know you, they like you, they trust you. They may have some money invested in something else like CDs, and they're looking to get a good return on their money. And you are a real estate investor and you're looking to borrow money in order to go buy a property, but they are not typically in the business of loaning money on real estate loans. That's private money in my mind. Hard money is someone who is in the business of loaning money and they're gonna make you a loan in order to buy real estate. Something like a hard money lender who is advertising and seeking out investments like this. So we talked about that in detail, I even shared with you my private money presentation of like how to go raise private money if you're if you're going to go do that. Um, And hard money you don't need to go raise private, you don't need to raise hard money. Um, They are already doing that that is their job is that they're providing these hard money loans. And we've covered those in a separate class I'm not going to deal with a ton of detail on that today either. One thing that we haven't covered. super recently, but I have an entire class on as well, is the home equity lines of credit. So using your HELOC, home equity line of credit, in order to borrow money, in order to acquire additional properties or buy them outright. So for example, you own your own home, your primary residence, free and clear, and you want to go buy a rental property, one could, if they were so inclined, actually do a HELOC on their primary residence, use all the money from that in order to buy the um, investment property, free and clear, so basically, they're transferring a loan. They're putting a HELOC on their primary, and they're using that to buy the property outright. Or they could use that as a down payment in order to buy another property as well. So you don't need the whole amount of money, but you could use it and st- still be leveraged on the invested property. So we'll talk about HELOCs a little bit. Although I do have a separate class on that as well. Uh, I do not have a separate class on life insurance. So we'll talk about that today. I do not have um, a separate class on buying property cash. Although I I take that back because yesterday I did a class on how much faster it was in some cases for you to actually pay cash for property. And I know that blows people's minds because it blew my mind yesterday when we went over the class, but basically we went over, we showed that um, in some markets, it actually is faster for you to take the, all the extra time, that significant amount of extra time in order to buy a property, all cash, instead of buying properties with 5% down as a nomad and doing that strategy. So that was super interesting, I think, um, to see how, how significant that was in certain markets. Um, so I do have a separate class on self-directed retirement accounts, but we'll cover that briefly today. And then I have a, I've like other classes we've done in the past on partnerships and how to structure them and all that stuff. Not specifically on the financing part, although I probably will do a standalone one on that in the future too. But that is what we're planning on covering. So let's jump into some of this stuff, but realize that there is a lot of this that you already have in the terms of a full separate class on these. Okay. All right, so creative financing entire separate class on this, but here's the quick overview. Owner financing. It's when a seller owns a property free and clear. They do not have a mortgage on the property and they act like the bank. You say to them, Hey, I'd like to buy your property. They say, great. I'd like to you the property. Um, I don't want to go get a traditional bank financing. They're like, that's okay. I'd like to get the income from the property. And they, you guys come to an agreement where you make them monthly payments. You negotiate the terms of the loan. You negotiate how long the loan will be. You negotiate what you need to qualify. In some cases, they'll ask you for your credit score. In some cases, they won't. In some cases, they'll they'll want to see you know proof of income. In some cases they won't. Um, so it's all negotiated there. The interest rate you negotiate with the seller is all negotiated. There's no set ones for that. It's not determined by a bank or anything like that. You get to negotiate it all. And so the seller will act like the bank and they will accept monthly payments or yearly payments if you negotiate it that way or quarterly payments, whatever you want to negotiate. And the seller will act like the bank to finance that property for you. That's owner financing. What if the seller has a loan on the property still? Well, you might be able to structure it as wrap financing then where the seller is going to accept the payment for you but they are going to pay part of the payment you give them on their underlying loan. They're going to wrap the financing that they have currently on the property, and they're going to give you a new loan around that. So let's say you're buying a $400,000 property, but they owe $200,000 on it with a loan that they already own. So you're going to take that, uh, that $200,000 loan, you're going to leave it in place The seller is going to collect payments on you making a payment for the full $400,000 purchase price minus whatever you decide to put up for down payment, whatever you negotiate. And then they are going to take part of the payment that you give to them, and they're going to pay that underlying $200,000 loan. That's wrap financing. Loan assumption is when you're going to formally go to the bank, and you are going to formally assume you're going to apply and take over full responsibility for a loan that the seller already has. So for example, a seller you know, a couple of years ago got a really, really good FHA loan and you come in and you want to buy that property from them, you can formally go to the lender that has that loan and tell them you would like to formally assume the FHA loan and they will have you fill out some paperwork, they may have you pay a fee, and then you take over their FHA loan with their old interest rate, which is probably attractive compared to what you can get today. The tricky part about doing loan assumptions in today's market is... In a lot of cases, not every single case, but in a lot of cases, the seller has acquired a property where they got their loan a few years ago, and the property values have gone up very rapidly since then. So they may have some equity that you may need to negotiate in some form or pay them in order to be able to formally assume their loan, okay? So that's the loan assumption. It's part of the creative financing. Then there's the whole rent-to-own, lease-to-own, lease option, lease purchase family, which is you agree, you go to a seller. Uh, you go to usually to a, a landlord who's who's renting the property, uh, although it can be to a seller and you go to them and you say, look, I realize you're renting this property. I would like to rent it from you, but I would also like to be able to buy it from you. They're like, that sounds good. Why don't we go ahead and do this? We will structure a lease agreement and I'll give you an option agreement to be able to buy the property. And so now you have a lease agreement in place with also in addition an option agreement in order to be able to buy the property for a certain price at a certain date in the future um, for, you know, with certain terms. And so basically you structure this. That's a lease with an option. Or you guys can come to an agreement, have the attorney say to you, hey, look, why don't we do this as a lease purchase? We'll have a lease agreement in place and we'll have a purchase contract that's good for a year or two years or whatever it is. And so now you have a lease with a purchase contract, which is a lease purchase. So that's the whole rent to own, lease to own, lease option, lease purchase family. If you want to structure it that way. Then there's the whole agreement for deed, bond for deed, contract for deed, installment land contract. You could think of this almost like your car financing, where you don't technically own your car until you've made all the payments as agreed. That's this version for house. You have an agreement with the seller that says if you make payments over a certain agreed upon period of time and you pay off uh, the, the full amount of the property, at the end of it, they will then give you a deed for the property. It's different from owner financing. That owner financing, you have a deed that you get immediately, but then there's usually either a mortgage or deed of trust that says if you don't pay, then the deed can be pulled back. You can have a foreclosure and the deed can be pulled back to the seller. So with the agreement for deed, the seller holds the deed until the very end. So some type of either installment land contract, agreement for deed, bond for deed, contract for deed. And then the last one is subject to. So the seller has a loan on the property and they agree to deed you ownership of the property and you agree to start making payments on their underlying loan. That's subject to. So that's the whole creative financing family. Go watch the two-hour version of that class for a lot more detail on that. But that is one of the other financing options that um, we have not talked about. Well, I guess we've talked about it in a separate class. All right, let's now talk about some private financing. And again, we have an entirely separate class on private financing and owner financing where I give you some of my private financing. I think I give you my uh, private financing... uh, report that I would use when I'm sitting down talking to somebody who is maybe interested in loaning money. You can look through that. Do not copy mine, please. Um, You know, go ahead and use it to um, get some ideas and then make your own. All right, so private financing. We don't usually use private financing for nomads or house hackers. This is usually, um, you know, like investment properties that you're not moving into, although you could I guess, in some really rare cases, get grandma to loan you money in order to do a nomad property. But it's highly unusual. Most cases, we're actually using some type of conventional long-term financing on those. So private financing, as I mentioned before, this is friends and family. It is not someone who's in the business of making loans. So to go to somebody and say, um, you know, do you, have, do you know somebody who's doing private financing? That's not how you do this. What you're really asking them is, do you know someone who's a hard money lender? If you want to do private financing, you got to go talk to them individually. At Thanksgiving dinner, you tell grandma what you're doing. She's like, I got this money sitting in the CD. Why don't we do something together? You can say, that sounds like a great idea, grandma. Let's work together and you can loan me the money. That's private financing. Or you're at work and you're telling your buddy at work, hey, I'm doing these fix and flips and you know I'm borrowing money from this guy and he's charging me 15%. And the guy's like, hey, 15%. That sounds really good. I said, yeah. Um, you know, He's like, hey, I'd be willing to do it for 12% or 10% or 8% or 7%. And so you end up talking to your buddy at work and your buddy at work's got some money that they want to get a return on. And you guys work together to structure that, usually with the help of an attorney, structure the paperwork for the first time or two. Okay. So private financing is more flexible than banks and can be much faster to close. The relationship is really important. It's actually critical in this case. It still requires a good financial statement um, because grandma's going to want to know that you're solvent, right? She, she's probably not going to take a risk if you know, you're know you not paying your other bills. She may, but probably not. Um, and then it's typically, you know, the, the range that you're able to negotiate is completely up to you what you and grandma or someone else decide. But I would say it's typically in the four to 8% range right now um, can be a little bit higher, can be a little bit lower depending on your relationship with the person and what they want and need, okay? So that's private financing. Hard money, entirely separate class on this. Don't usually use this for nomads or house hackers because the hard money lenders are not usually willing to make consumer loans, loans where you are moving into the property. They usually only wanna make commercial loans loans where you are not moving into the property. So they'll do loans like stuff on fix and flips, or if you're doing some type of like BRRRR strategy where you're buying a property, you're rehabbing it, you're getting it rented out, and then you're refinancing it. At this point, probably a year later, that's the new rule for doing BRRRR. Um, So you're probably doing that and you're using a hard money lender for that kind of 12-month period in order to do it. So typically for a fix and flip or fix up, refi strategy, the BRRRR strategy, it's often shorter term loans. You know, If you're doing a quick fix and flip, sometimes it's as short as three months. Most of the time, it's going to be a little longer than that, so it'll take you some time to do the fix and flip, and then also to market the property and get it closed. So oftentimes, it's probably more in the six to nine. And then if you're doing the burst strategy, it's going to probably need to be 12 months at this point in order to get you your kind of like money out financing thing where you actually get and replace the hard money loan. The property is going to be really important to the lender. Does it support the loan? Are you able to buy it at a big enough discount where it supports this type of loan? Um, Most of the time, a lot of these lenders are going to go to like 70% loan to value, loan to after repaired value. And so you're able to buy a property at a big enough discount. A lot of times you'll be able to do this as a nothing down loan program. Um, More often than not, though, I think you're going to find that you're going to need to bring some money to the table. If not for the purchase, then for the uh, fix up uh, part of the, the process as well. It, it is possible you could do it as completely nothing down, but it is tricky to do. You can do it, but it's going to be expect a lot of hard work and jump into a lot of hoops and trying to find the the perfect property, the perfect lender, the perfect situation where you're able to do that. It is, this this uh, business of doing fix and flips is a lot easier if you have some of your own money. That's another way of saying that. Uh, the bar will typically be screened thoroughly as well. So a lot of folks think, you know, I'm going to go do fix and flips because I've got bad credit or no credit. And uh, you know, I want to get started in this real estate investing. And this is a way for me to build up my down payment and then build up my credit while I'm doing that, pay off some old debts I've got, clean up my credit and be able to get a property where now I can go buy long-term buying old properties. So they think that going in and doing like fix and flip and doing hard money is the way to go. But oftentimes the hard money lenders, not always, but I would say the overwhelming majority of times, the hard money lender is going to want to look at you as the borrower as well. Unless it's just like a ridiculously amazing deal and they feel super safe or it's like an individual hard money lender who's sort of like, you know, operating off the cuff and you know, maybe they're not making as many loans as they want to and they're willing to take a little bit of extra risk and they're willing to do something with somebody who has some credit challenges or something like that. I, I think that you may be able to find those, but the ones that are in business are probably going to want to see you as a borrower to have decent credit and look at you a little bit as well as the property. Um, so the hard money rates tend to be in that 10 to 15%, sometimes a little bit higher, sometimes a little bit lower and usually paying one to five points. A point is a percent of the original loan amount that you're getting. And so they may charge you, you know, two points and 15% or something like that in order to do it, which means you're going to pay 2% of the initial loan, um, as a fee in order to get the loan. And then you're going to pay 15% per year interest on that. So if you only hold it a half year, you're only paid half of that. But if you fold it the full year, you're paying 15% of the original balance my opinion, and this may change over time, but my opinion is there's more money than there are deals right now. And this can change over time sometimes. And it's also market dependent. There's some markets where there's plenty of deals. There's some markets where the market's still really hot and we're still seeing high demand for properties. And it's hard to find deals where you can buy them at big discounts, um, especially when there's not a lot of inventory and a lot of people still want to buy houses. So just be careful about that. Um, It could change over time too. So realize that just because it is one way now doesn't mean six months from now or two years from now or five years from now or 10 years from now, that doesn't change. And hard money can be used in conjunction with other financing. So sometimes we'll go and want to do owner financing with a seller and we'll go and we'll use a really small hard money first mortgage and first position where we're borrowing, you know, $60,000 to go buy a $500,000 property. We're giving $50,000 of that to the seller in order to get the owner financing, then the seller is carrying back a note for, I don't know, 450,000 on a $500,000 purchase. Uh, You're giving them 50,000 of the 60,000 you borrow and you're taking $10,000 in order to do repairs and for some holding costs or whatever else you're doing there. So that's an example where you could use hard money in conjunction with another strategy, for example, that owner financing deal. All right, so that's hard money. Lines of credit, entirely separate class on lines of credit as well. Um, usually it's using equity you have in your existing properties up to a certain loan to value limit. The loan to value limit does change a little bit depending on whether you're doing owner-occupant properties, like your property that you're living in, or you're doing investment properties. Um, I would say it's more common to have these on owner-occupant properties, properties you live in, than to do them on investment properties. Although you can find banks occasionally who are willing to do these on investment properties, they tend to be they tend to be more variable rate loans, although you could probably find some exceptions to that. Um, and they have different maximum interest rates if you're doing that and also maximum loan to values. This is the, the idea behind this is you can tap into equity in another property to finance a new property. The thing you need to be careful of when you're thinking about lines of credit is that make sure that the money you're pulling out of the HELOC, that the new property you're buying supports the payment on that as well. Otherwise, you've got this payment on your HELOC, and you may have used that money as a down payment, as an example, and then the property needs to support and get a big enough return, uh, and, and it's going to be like your what you would look at normally as your cash-on-cash cash return on investment, because normally it's thinking you're using that down payment. You've got that as money out there, so now your cash-on-cash your cash return investment needs to be enough to pay the payments on that HELOC that you got. And depending on what market you're in and what interest rates are and the property you're buying, that sometimes is hard to do. In some markets, it's easy to do, but in some markets, it's really difficult to do. So uh, another little warning about HELOCs is in some cases, these HELOCs can be closed early in times of tight lending periods. So if we see some type of financial crisis, it's not unheard of to have the bank call you up and tell you, Hey, look, um, we're closing down your line of credit. Um, maybe they're telling you we want to see, depending on what your agreement actually with them says. But maybe they want you to pay off the amount that you owe in a certain period of time. Maybe they'll convert that to a you know a fixed period loan, but they won't let you borrow any more. So realize that there are times when the lender's appetite for these can change, usually with some type of financial crisis like you know two thousand eight, two thousand nine, that sort of stuff, where now the lenders are no longer willing to have these home equity lines of credit out there and available to you in case you want to use them. So if you think this is going to be a strategy you could use universally, that may not be the best plan. If you think, hey, look, I'm going to go, my plan is to go buy all these properties and have HELOCs on all of them, and then to use these HELOCs in order to acquire properties, that may work great until they close down all the HELOCs. And then you'd have to change the strategy. So just realize that that can happen, um, you know, kind of thinking ahead when you do your strategy. All right, life insurance. So. I'm not an expert on life insurance and there's not a separate class on this. So I'm going to try to cover it as well as I can, but realize that you want to go talk to, if you, if you have a life insurance policy already, you want to go talk to your existing rep who can actually walk you through this. And if you're thinking about doing this, you should really study this. And there's a lot of, how can I describe this? There's a lot of information out there about life insurance that is, Designed to be persuasive to sell you life insurance, but is worded oddly. So there's a period of time a few years ago now, um, probably three or four years ago, where me and a couple friends were really digging into this life insurance idea. Um, you know, like they, they talk about like the infinite banking stuff and everything like that. So there's a period of time where I was doing a ton of reading and a ton of studying this. And one of the things I came away with is the way that some people were wording their description of life insurance and how it gets used, while it was technically correct, it was, in my opinion, misleading. It was worded in such a way that you could interpret it in a true way, but you could also say, that's not exactly what's going on there. Um, So just be real, like eyes wide open if you're going to go do life insurance. Um, Not that it's a bad thing, but realize that uh, if it seems too good to be true, It probably is too good to be true, I guess is another way of describing what I'm talking about here. Okay, so the idea behind life insurance, though, is you could pay a company, a third party life insurance company, um, and you can pay them a certain amount of money. um, And this is like term life insurance. I'll give you the really brief thing. So you pay a certain amount of money. And for a certain period of time, like the next year or five years or whatever it is, if you happen to die during that period of time, then the life insurance company will pay out. So for example, maybe you pay in, I don't know what the numbers are, but let's say you pay in $1,000 a year uh, for the next five years. And if you die at any point during the next five years, they will pay out, you know, a million dollars. I don't know if those are the exact numbers, but the idea is you pay in a certain amount of money and they pay you out a certain amount of money if you happen to die during that period. And there are usually some exceptions like, you know, if you die in a you know, within the first three months of the policy and it was, you know, by your own doing or something like that, then they may not pay out. So there's usually some type of carve out uh, for this type of stuff. So for life insurance. So that's sort of term insurance. And you don't have any residual balance. It's not like you pay the thousand dollars in and you know you're you've got an account with them that's accumulating or accruing or whatever it is like there. You basically you pay them a certain amount of money and you get the life insurance benefit from that. But there are all sorts of variations and they go by a whole bunch of different names. And there's a lot of there's a wide range of all this stuff. But basically, you can choose to pay in a larger amount to the life insurance company. And they will then invest that money and they will earn a return. And then they will like have your balance with them actually grow. And so part of the money is going to pay a life insurance premium so that if you do die, there is a big payout. But in addition to that, you're paying more than the amount that you would need to have paid just to have gotten that life insurance benefit. And then they're taking part of that extra money and they are investing it on your behalf. And so what are they investing in? I don't know. You can go look up their kind of guidelines exactly. But a lot of times they're investing in stuff like stocks or bonds or other investments that they might have. And in some cases, what they're doing is they're taking the money that they have and they are loaning it out to the actual holders of the policy. So for the example, so over the last 10 years, let's say you've been putting money in this life insurance kind of policy that you've got there. And over that time period, you've grown a balance with them where you have $100,000 sort of like accrued with them internally in your account. And they want to go and and they say, look, you've got this $100,000 invested with us. What do you want to do? And you could go to them and say, I would like to borrow against my $100,000 that I have with you. And then they will loan that to you and they will charge interest that. And they may not charge you the interest directly. They may sort of like do some accounting where maybe there's payments on it. Maybe there's not payments on it. You really need to go talk to your policyholder as to what this might work like, but realize that any interest you're paying, you're paying it to yourself instead of that money growing in whatever it is there. So that's sort of the idea. So you're really just, it's it's sort of like a weird savings account with some additional tax benefits and maybe some, you know, of the of the policy itself going to some life insurance. They, they get all complicated. There's lots of variations on them. So go do that. So the idea is you may decide to pay into this life insurance policy um, and have this be an investment vehicle. Um, and then you could borrow money from this in order to purchase rental properties or do something else, whatever you really want to do. It's up to you as to what you can do there. And just make sure that your property can support any additional debt or interest payments that you're accruing or that you're actually having to pay by doing this life insurance policy. I'll make one other point about this life insurance. Really you should dig in if if it's something that's of interest to you. Um, But the the, the thinking of this is this, you know, if if you're going to go hire a third party company in order to take this money and invest it on your behalf, they're going to go buy stocks or bonds or whatever they're going to do, realize that they're not usually giving you the exact return that they're earning. And they may charge you some type of admin fee, or they may say, you know, we will, you know, you'll get 80% of it, or you'll get something. So, really, they can structure it lots of different ways, but they are having to profit to run their whole organization from the money that you have invested with them. So, it's not like you just take the money and you invest it directly and you get to keep 100%. They're usually taking the money and they're investing it and they're charging you some type of fee in order to do that. Okay. That's enough being said about life insurance. Let's move on. I was talking about self-directed retirement accounts. And there's an entire separate class on this. So like, for example, if you have a self-directed IRA or a self-directed 401k, that is you have an account, an IRA or 401k, and instead of having it with Fidelity or Vanguard or whatever it is like that, where you're investing in stocks or bonds or whatever other types of securities that they may sell, you could decide instead of having the account with them, you could go be with an attorney or a specialist who does this for you and create a self-directed version of that where you have control over the money and what you invest in. And when you do that, there are lots of limitations and rules about what you can and can't do, but you could then use that money in order to go buy things other than stocks or bonds. You could go buy things like gold or you could go buy things like real estate or in some cases probably some other type of investments. There are restrictions, there are a lot of rules about this. Um, go watch the class on a lot of details on that. And also there are rules about what you can do for the investment you're buying. So there are limitations on if you go buy the property, you doing work on that property, if it is your self-directed retirement account. So just be careful about buying a property, thinking that you're going to do the rehab on it, and then you're gonna be able to sell this property. There are restrictions on that. And so you may need to work with someone else or hire someone else to do those jobs if you're gonna do it. Now, if you go use the self-directed retirement account and you want to use it as a down payment to get a loan in order to do a purchase of property, most lenders are going to insist on doing a non-recourse loan because they can't go after your IRA um, or your 401k, your self-directed stuff, Uh, if you're getting a mortgage with a property owned by a self-directed retirement account. So if you think, I'm going to take this money and I'm going to go get a rental property, you're not going to probably be able to put 20% down. If you're going to get a non-recourse loan, usually as a portfolio loan with a portfolio lender, they're usually going to require at least 35% down as a non-recourse loan. And because they're using some type of you know debt service debt, debt service coverage ratio um, in order to make sure that the property is going to be uh, supporting itself, they may require more than 35% down. And it's been my experience with clients that have used these before is that sometimes you don't find this out until really late in the game like a week before closing when you've done a lot of stuff and you don't want to drop out of the contract then they tell you look you know i, I know we originally talked about 35 percent, but after we've looked at the whole situation and the property and everything we're going to now require 45 percent down or 52 percent down or whatever it is that they tell you in order to be able to get that loan so be prepared you heard it here first that these 35 percent numbers are not like the set in stone number that you have to do for a lot of lenders okay when you get these type of non recourse loans, if you're getting like 30 year financing, in most cases, those are going to be some type of adjustable rate mortgage. They're going to be variable. Um, and if you do a 15 year amortization, in some cases, you may be able to find ones where they have fixed rate financing on those. But the problem with 15 percent or 15 year fixed rate financing is a lot of times the payment on those is so much larger that your cash flow is going to be really ugly. It's going to have negative cash flow in a lot of cases when you do this. Now, there's sort of like this weird. I don't know if it's a trick, but some lenders consider you funding an LLC from your self-directed IRA or self-directed 401k as different than the self-directed IRA or self-directed 401k being the owner of the property and investing directly. So, for example, you have a buddy who also is interested in investing in rental property. You guys decide to form an LLC together. And you guys get together and your self-directed IRA is going to be the one that wants to fund the deal. So the self-directed IRA takes a, let's call it a 50% ownership interest to be whatever you decide, but it takes half ownership interest in the property in exchange for providing, in this case, let's call it 20% down. And then your partner... Your other investor buddy is going to be the operating person in the agreement. They're going to go find the property. They're going to do all the work on the property. They're going to manage the property. They're going to do all that in exchange for their half of the deal. You guys are going to go out and buy a property, and for some reason, a lot of these portfolio lenders, when you're going to go form an LLC that has the self-directed IRA just being the funding partner in the LLC, they see that as different than your IRA owning the property directly, and there's probably some good reasons why, right? But then your Your other partner is going to have to sign on the loan. They're going to be personally responsible. They're going to be a personal guarantor on that loan. And then your self-directed IRA is going to provide that for 20% down. So instead of having to put 35% down, if your IRA owns it directly, in this case, because you formed an LLC with someone else, you're not going to be able to do this with you. You're not going to be able to partner with your LLC, is my understanding. You're need to do it with someone else. They will be able to personally guarantee the loan, and you will be able to do it with 20% down. So that's a kind of way to do it. Again, talk to a professional, specialize in these in details or go watch the two-hour class to get some insight before you go talk to your guy. All right. Couple more. Cash. So yesterday, just happened to teach a class on this. We talked about, and there's lots of variations on this, but yesterday we talked about if you're doing the, like the nomad strategy of buying a property as an owner-occupant, 5% down, moving into the property for at least a year, living there for a year. Then after you're done living there for a year and saving up your next down payment, down payment, you convert that one to a rental. You buy your next property 5% down. You move into that when you live there for a year and you repeat this process until you have as many rentals as you want to acquire. So using that strategy compared to somebody who is moving into a property, living there, and they, they buy their one owner-occupant property first and they stay there forever. Then they start saving up using the same savings rate as the other person was for doing their nomad. So it's not a huge savings rate, but taking what seems like forever to save up to the point where you have 100% of the purchase price of the property you want to buy, and then buying your rental property, not moving into it, but buying your rental property, all cash. Then you take all the savings you have from your regular job and any positive cash flow you have from this free and clear rental property, you use that to save up and buy another free and clear property with that thing. It turns out that in some markets, that is actually faster. saving up and paying all cash for properties than doing the nomad strategy of buying 5% down properties and acquiring them that way. It depends on the market with our current interest rates, current prices, current rents. okay? So that's what we found out. So if you're like, you know who is buying properties all cash, in some cases, it's actually faster for you to be financially independent for you to do the cash strategy versus doing financing. And I'm sure in the future, I will also do comparisons doing, you know, 20% down versus paying all cash and 25% down versus paying all cash. and Maybe even like, you know, 50% down, like five zero instead of doing all cash. Like I'll go do all those strategies and I will show you how. And sometimes it's more effective, faster to do it other ways. Uh, And then I also yesterday looked at risk, which one is more risky. Turns out when you do financing, it is riskier. Um, And then also how that impacts your net worth. And in a lot of cases, Doing the ones where you finance properties gives you a higher net worth, although a lot of times you become financially independent where the income from your properties and your other investments actually um, exceeds your personal expenses faster by doing the all cash strategy. So you have conflicting goals. If you really want highest net worth, maybe you still do financing. If you want to be financially independent fastest, maybe you do the cash strategy. So it's really interesting how that varies depending on market to market. Go watch the class. I still got posted it. Posted to the website yesterday, or it'll eventually be on the podcast too. So, okay. So, taking with cash, sometimes taking the significant extra time to save up to pay all cash for properties can still be a very reasonable strategy in some real estate markets. So, you may think to yourself, it's going to take me whatever it is, you know, 15 years to be able to save up to buy one property for all cash. But once you get there, maybe that is a third of the amount you need in order to be financially independent, and then you could buy your next property a lot faster because the savings you have from your job and all the cash flow you've got from that free and clear property mean that you could buy your next property in a third of the time or half of the time or whatever it is. And then when you've got two free and clear properties, the amount of money, the amount of time it takes to buy your third property is like almost zero, right? Because you've got all this money, not zero but it gets really really fast as you get more and more of these versus buying a property where you have very little cash flow and then you buy another property has very little cash flow you still have very little cash flow even though you have two properties okay and and as an aside there are versions of this strategy where you buy a whole bunch of these relatively small cash flowing properties more than you need like let's say you buy 10 and then you let the equity in the properties grow up so that you can then sell off half of them or a third of them and pay off the remaining ones to get to the point where it's free and clear. And that may be the fastest strategy of all. We have to go look at that and model that and see, and I've done some modeling on it and you can go look on the website to see it. So if you want to see some of these variations, how they compare, you can go to the real estate financial planner.com forward slash model and look up a lot of these modelings for like 305 U S cities. Okay. So that's cash partners. Now that we've covered like all the conventional primary strategies, You know, conventional FHA, VA, USDA, portfolio loans, covered all the creative stuff, covered the private money, hard money, portfolio loans, HELOCs, like we covered all these different things. Now it's time to talk about partners, because partners is really, it's really you relying on someone else to use one of these other strategies, right? I mean, they're going to get the money from somewhere, either they've got cash. Or they're going to go get a private money loan, or they're going to go get a hard money loan, or they're going to get a portfolio loan, or they're going to use a HELOC on their own property, or they're going to use their life insurance or their self-directed retirement account, or whatever. And so the idea is that partners is really just meaning you're not the one getting the loan. You may go find the deal, you may decide you're going to be the one managing the deal, you're going to go do all the, the work and the heavy lifting, and your partner's going to come in and they're going to use their HELOC or their life insurance, or they've got a private money grandma who's gonna loan them the money, or you know they're gonna go qualify for the hard money loan, or they're gonna, you know, or maybe you're the one that's coming in as a partner and you're doing creative financing deals and you need someone to come in with some cash. Like there's all sorts of variations on this, but realize that it's really all the stuff we've already covered. It's not something new, okay? And just be careful if you do partners, if you sign on the loan with your partner, this typically does count as a loan spot for everyone that signs. So if you go decide, hey, look, we're going to do this partnership and the partner's the one primarily qualifying and the lender for whatever reason says, hey, why don't you go sign on the loan as well? That does count as a loan spot for you. So if you're concerned about hitting your 10 loan spots before you have to go to portfolio financing, you want to be sure that you're not going to be one of the ones signing for that loan. And it may mean that you need to structure it slightly differently. So talk to your attorney and your lender to make sure that you got that structured right. Okay, so in conclusion, you're much more likely, as I showed you at the very beginning, to utilize one of the primary financing options when buying rentals. It was conventional financing, FHA, DA, USDA, um, and then other. And the other was like 5%, if I remember correctly. So 5% now, we've talked about all these other options you've got from creative financing, private money, hard money, portfolio all these other things that we've got here those just are that 5% so there's there's a really small chance that you're gonna need to use these at all and then if you do decide to use them this is kind of the information you've got there so however there are some more unusual less frequently used options that we've talked about they you might want to consider as there are more unusual situations all right that's all I got any questions from the folks that are on live otherwise we're going to call it here Hope you enjoyed the kind of series on financing. Go dig into the other classes if you want details on those. Any final questions? All right, that sounds great. I appreciate you guys. Thank you so much. I will talk to you all tomorrow for our next class. Bye-bye for now. With home prices up, mortgage interest rates up, and rents up, but not quite enough to counteract the higher prices and interest rates. Cash flow on rental properties in Fort Lauderdale is harder than ever. Book a call with the Real Estate Financial Planner to apply our proprietary 88 strategies to improve cash flow on your rentals. See the show notes for a link to schedule your call and improve your cash flow today. If you're a real estate agent, lender, or professional in Fort Lauderdale that wants to help our real estate investor listeners,